worshiping with us. That's a wonderful gift, uh, incredible technology. We're grateful for you that come, and we're grateful for all those that tune in and join us in worship each Sunday. What a blessing. What a blessing. Brother Scott Ellis back here is a dentist, now retired. His brother Mike was a dentist as well. And Mike passed yesterday. So be in prayer for Scott and Susan and all the family uh, involved as uh, they go through this time. It's, uh, it's tough. Anytime we lose a, a loved one close, it's hard at Christmas, it really is, because then it's associated with that all the time as well. So Mike, uh, his family, all of them will be praying for you, and particularly you, Scott and Susan, during this time. Well, Galatians chapter 4, and I want to start in verse 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. We're in bondage under the elements of the world. So many people out there today are in bondage under the elements of the world. No telling how many, how large the percentage is of those who are out maybe doing last minute shopping for Christmas gifts even this morning are wrestling with that crowd and all that stuff in the rain under bondage of the world. Notice though the next verse, this incredibly simple conjunction, but, <laughs> but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem that them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because we are sons, God sent forth the spirit, uh, sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, we are no more servants, but sons. And if sons, then heirs of God through Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we love you, and we're grateful, Lord, that you, according to your own holy purpose and counsel and will, chose not to leave us under the dominion of darkness, under the elements of this world, but you chose to send the Lord Jesus we're grateful, Father, we really are. We're grateful, Father, for every aspect of our salvation and the peace and joy that comes in the good times, the peace and joy that comes in the difficult and the sad times. Thank you, Father, for being our Lord and our God. And we're here today, Father, to celebrate and worship to study your word, to sing your praises, to give you all the glory and honor and praise. And Lord, to that end, I surrender to you. Again, Lord, wear me like a garment, all of you, none of me, because we have come to hear of thee, to sit at your feet, 
to worship you, Master. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Well, so last week we spoke about the incarnation and uh, pointed out, of course, as we all knew, it's the only basis for Christianity, period. The incarnation is the only basis for Christianity and it's the only basis for the celebration of the Christmas season. Without the incarnation, there will be none of that. And here's this that we used last week. Uh, the incarnation is defined as the act whereby the eternal pre-existing Son of God, without ceasing to be what He had eternally been, took into union with Himself what, before the incarnation, He did not possess, namely a human nature. It's incredible, the incarnation of the God-man Christ Jesus the Lord taking upon himself what he had never had before and continued to have what he had, but also continuing to have what he took on possession of himself because he's eternally now the God-man, Christ Jesus, the Lord. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the most illustrious preachers ever stand on the planet. He only lived 58 years. He was born in 1834. He died in 1892. But in that short 58-year life, and of course part of it was childhood, right? He only lived 58 years. He preached over 10 million people in his lifetime. Fascinating. When you read some of his stuff, you'll understand why so many people flock to hear him. This is part of it, what he said about the incarnation. Infinite and yet an infant, eternal and born of a woman, almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast, supporting the universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms. King of angels, and yet the reputed son of Joseph, heir of all things, and yet the carpenter's despised son. Augustine lived from 354 to 430. He wrote this about the incarnation. He by whom all things were made was made one of all things. The son of God by the father without a mother, became the son of man by a mother without a father. Let me read that again. The son of God by the father without a mother became the son of man without a father by a mother. Word who was God before all time became flesh at the appointed time. The maker of this son was made under the sun. He who fills the world lay in a manger, great in the form of God, but tiny in the form of a servant. This was in such a way that neither was his greatness diminished by his tininess, nor was his tininess overcome by his greatness. Christendom, a contemporary roughly, 347 to 407, said, I do not think of Christ as God alone, or man alone, but both together. For I know that he was hungry, and I know that with five loaves he had fed 5,000 people. I know that he was thirsty, and I know he, was, he turned water into wine. I know that he was carried in a ship, and I know that he walked upon the sea. I know that he died, and I know that he was raised from the dead. I know that he was set before Pilate. And now he sits with the Father in his throne. I know that he was worshipped by angels. 
and I know he was stoned by the Jews. I started to leave out that last sentence there of his quote, that quote from Christendom, because it's inaccurate. Jesus was never stoned, certainly worshiped by angels, but never stoned. Uh, John chapter 8, verses 56 and 59, there's Jesus confronting the Jews there. Jesus told him, says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And they said, <laughs> the Jews said to him, Can you imagine the charlie horses they got between their ears when they confronted the Lord Jesus Christ and some of these things he said to them? They said, you're, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself, walked out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So why did I leave that last phrase in? Well, it was a quote, <laughs> you know. But no, I left it in because of this. To remind us all that everything that's written about the Lord, or about the scriptures, doctrinal statements, opinions, everything else, we need to always remember to check them, check the veracity of those statements, the accuracy of those statements according to the Word of God. Because that last statement, while it's eloquently sounds, eloquently written and sounds great, it's inaccurate. And so we want to be careful with what we read and how we use it. Certainly the Jews would have stoned him on that day if they could have, but that wasn't in the sovereign plan for Jesus to be stoned. So again, the twofold purpose for his coming was to reveal God to us, but also to redeem the elect of God. And so the incarnation then becomes the, the facilitation, the, the means to redeem those elect. Ephesians 1.5, we were predestined unto adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself. That was before the foundation of the earth. So the incarnation is a provision for what? Our redemption, the elect of God. And he continues to be the God-man at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us because, number one, he loves us. And he's shown that because he's given himself for us. But number two, he knows certainly well that we need intercession because of our struggles with sin, the flesh, in this life. And someday, though, he will personally come again and personally receive you, you personally unto himself. So, now some important considerations concerning the incarnation. First of all, the incarnation has to be understood clearly, precisely, what it is, what it's about by every Christian. It's, it's necessary that we understand it in all of our doctrines, but particularly the incarnation, because all other doctrines either stand or fall with it. If you don't have your doctrine of incarnation down, where are you going to go? Because everything else is hinging upon this, that God and Christ Jesus came. And so then we have these other doctrines that come unfold out of the, the scriptures. But they all stand or fall based on this one single doctrine. The apostle John in his gospel spoke clearly, distinctly about it. He said, the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh. 
That's the incarnation. The word that was God became flesh. He dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. It's full of the grace and truth. And then his personal experience in his epistle, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, that which was God. That word which was God from the beginning, which we've heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life. Because of John's personal experience, under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God, he made one's position on the incarnation a test of orthodoxy. Okay? It's a test of orthodoxy. He made it clear that you either believe or you don't, and it puts you in one of the two categories. You're either orthodox in your faith or you're not orthodox in your faith, based on your opinion, your belief about the incarnation. And in doing so, at the same time, he gave us a clue about how to discern the spirit of the Antichrist. First John chapter 4, 1 and 2, we studied a few Sundays back, believe not every spirit. Why? Try the spirits. Why? Because many false prophets are going out into the world. Hereby we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. That's it. And then the clue about the Antichrist. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus has come in the flesh is that spirit of Antichrist, which was in the world then and now. So we know clearly there's the test of orthodoxy. Do we either believe the truth of the scripture concerning the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ? And you're going to see people out there, encounter people, if you spend any time sharing your faith anywhere, or maybe sometime you just show up and sit somewhere and you listen to what people are saying, you're going to hear people say something different from that. Oh, I believe in Jesus, but I, you know, I, I don't believe in the incarnation or, or this and that and the other. We'll talk about some of that in a moment. But the Word of God says He came in the flesh. And if you believe the Word of God, then you, <laughs> the case is settled, right? Jesus came in the flesh. Then there's a witness of the Apostle Paul, which is our text today. When the fullness of time has come, what a wonderful comfort those words bring to our hearts because the Lord is always on time. Sometimes it sure doesn't feel like it. I lost this CD. I think it might have been in Waverly's car when it was wrecked. I'm not sure. But it was, it was a woman, a, a black lady with a precious, beautiful voice. And she was talking about the Lord, singing about the Lord Jesus. And she got to the Lazarus tomb part. She was talking about that. She said, he showed up four days late, right on time. <laughs> Isn't that marvelous? And he's always on time. In the fullness of time, when it was come, God sent forth his son, made every woman, made under the law, redeemed them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. Because we're sons, God sent forth his spirit into us. That's the Dividing line right there, you see. Because the Word of God clearly tells us that we cannot confess that Jesus is the Christ apart from the Holy Spirit of God. 
That's why people out there will say con things contrary to that because the Holy Spirit is not in them because they're not the sons or daughters of God through faith and trust in the Son of God. That's it. They can't confess it. They might say from the Adam's apple up, oh yeah, I believe it. Jesus is, is the Son of God. I believe he was born in Bethlehem 2,000 plus years ago. They might say all that and you can say all of that and be lost because you can't be saved without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in you in the first place. When that regeneration work of the Holy Spirit is done by the sovereign hand of the Father, then you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you're baptized in the Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit of God comes into your heart and there and forever. Somewhere in my <laughs> study, only God knows where, I have the entire recorded debate between Madeline Murray O'Hare and Dr. W.A. Criswell. It's amazing how much that pagan woman knew about the scripture. Wow. Almost encyclopedic. Lost. Lost. Fullness of time he came. Well, what, what does it say there? In the fullness of time, what did he do? In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. What does that speak of? It speaks of the pre-incarnation, right? The pre-incarnation. Christ before. You can't be sent someplace unless you exist. In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. Pre-existence. That word sent forth, by the way, is the word exapostello. And you look at the Greek in that, and you look at the word apostolos, and you say, wow, there's a correlation here. And there is. <laughs> you know, exapostello means to send forth, and it means to dispatch, to send away towards a designated goal or a purpose. That's precisely that's what God did. He sent Christ for a designated purpose to the virgin's womb. And we think about apostles, the sent ones, to preach the gospel. But this, this word here, exapostello, is a verb. It's an aorist tense verb, something that happened in the past. It's an infinitive tense, which means it's a fact. So it's something that's happened. It's a verb form. But the noun form, apostolos, which is the apostle John, apostle Paul, and so forth, is also applied directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, Whosoever, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of our heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, the Lord Jesus Christ. One sent on a mission. The mission was redemption. Made of a woman. Contextually, probably, that verse does not directly speak of the virgin birth, but rather his full humanity full humanity of the Lord based on the context there. But certainly the virgin birth could be included in it. For the Apostle Paul or any other Jew though, or Judaizer, the significance of that phrase, made of a woman, full humanity, whatever, would take them back to Genesis 3.15. Lord speaking to Satan, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. 
Though, when for Paul and the other Jews, the significance of that statement made of a woman, you know, at fullness of time, he said, finally, now, this promised seed is here to defeat Satan under his feet. And possibly Paul was also thinking of Isaiah 7.14. The Lord will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They call his name Jesus, Emmanuel. So biblically it's clear without any doubt. The scriptures speak clearly and distinctly that the Lord came in the flesh. Not all people believe it. But it's true, and he did. And at Christ everywhere. Many then, <laughs> ooh, no telling how many more now there are out there. Here's some survey statistics I've checked on. Some of them are very recent, some of them are not. This one is particularly, it was December of 21. It's so 75%, which is three in four Americans, believe that Jesus was born in Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago. Even more so that Jesus is the Son of God, which is interesting. More believe he's the Son of God than believe he's born in Bethlehem. It's hard to understand. But less than one half believe he existed before his birth in Bethlehem. Less than one half. So they believe, yeah, he was born, but though he didn't exist before. So that's roughly two in five, 41%, believe in the preexistence of Christ. 32% strongly disagree, and 28% just not sure. <laughs> That's interesting when you consider that 91% of American population celebrates Christmas. You think about that when you're out and about, all this rush going on, all these people, this hustle and bustle to buy those gifts and get those things in time for Christmas. For a lot of those people, and I don't speak condescendingly of them, I speak in pity for, of them, for them, because they're out here doing all this stuff. Well, it's a holiday, and we're off from work. It's time to have parties and drink and whatever and get gifts. Oh, boy, this is great. And we charge out there to do it, 91% of Americans. Of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Muslims are some of that small percentage that don't. Did you know this, that more Americans believe in the historical accuracy of the biblical narrative of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ than they do in climate change? <laughs> That's kind of encouraging. Think about it. In a study, this is in 14, I couldn't find anything newer than this, 61% of Americans believe that climate change is actually happening. Only 61%. That's less than believe in the Lord Jesus Christ's birth. Only 40%, though, believe it is caused by human behavior. That means almost twice as many Americans believe in the virgin birth as believe in human-induced global warming or climate change, whatever you want to call it. This is fascinating. You know, we're told the icebergs are melting, you know, and, and the coastlines, oh, people are going to be in danger because the water's coming up, coming up, coming up, and like down there at Baton Rouge, all those places, New Orleans, what are these people going to do? 
on the morning news, Fox News, they're talking about some people may not get what they intended to get for Christmas or hope to get for Christmas because down at the Panama Canal, there's a log jam of ships stranded because there's not enough water to work the locks. And they're going to drown because of global warming. You know, I believe in a God that is sovereign. Absolutely. And I believe also that the Father has a sense of humor. I really do. A loving sense of humor. It's just amazing to me because every time we see all this stuff going on and the left's harping about da-da-da-da-da, the Lord will just drop something in there like that. Not enough water in the locks. You watch. It happens all down through the years. They're going on about this, but then there's this that the Lord does. You know, we had global warming out our ears. They were talking about it and until it to almost froze to death. And then they started about climate change. <laughs> you know, oh, God help us. God help us. Well, Antichrist everywhere. And I want to I share with you, this is a real severe attack right here. This group, and they represent a horde of people that hang on every word they say. These books that I'll mention are still available on Amazon. And uh, 3.9 rating out of 5 and that sort of thing. One of the introductions says, oh, this is an incredible work by work of scholars, da-da-da-da, you know, that sort of thing. They call themselves theologians, I guess, but so. The first group, they put 10 essays in a book. It was called, entitled, The Myth of God Incarnate. First, it was published in 1977, sequel in 1979. There have been several additional uh, writings by this group, and particularly John Hicks, who was the uh, editor-in-chief of the first publication, and, and then he published another uh, piece or two after that. Here is a summary of some of their arguments against the Incarnation. So the idea of the Incarnation, that God became man in Jesus of Nazareth, is a construction, is a construction based on the New Testament, but not in it. Therefore, we must recognize that the idea of the Incarnation is a myth. Jesus was a real man, born in a normal fashion, a child of Mary and Joseph. He did not exist before his birth. The concept of Jesus being God's only son was a mistaken development. Jesus is no different than any in kind from any other man. That's fascinating, isn't it? And so what my question to these nodheads would be, well, why are our calendars dated like they are anyway? There's so many things there. But see, and, and you'll notice if you read any of this stuff, and I certainly suggest you do not. It's not worth your waste your time. But if you read this, they speak so authoritatively. There's a guy in Hideaway. <laughs> Used to sing in a choir up in Irving, Texas, he said. He said, I've done my research, and I found that all of that's myth, so I don't participate in the church anymore. I was grateful for that, really. 
because some people at Hideaway come because it's the amenity of the community to Hideaway Church. I didn't want to be his pastor. How do, do you understand? And you can look at these people and become angry, but you have, you have to look beyond them. This is darkness. This is spiritual darkness. Men and women under the dominion of darkness, the Satan takes them captive at his will. This is not intellectual. This is spiritual deadness that comes up with this mess. Now, from what I have just read, these, this summary, what other doctrine, because I remember I said the doctrines stand or fall based on your position on the incarnation. What other doctrine would you say that they reject? The inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. It has to be that. They reject that, they're rejecting the Scriptures. What is the, are the Scriptures? Just something man has written. That's it. No difference. And here's two statements. Think about this. The Bible, right here, contains the Word of God. How does it sound? The Bible contains the Word of God. Okay? Well, let me say it this way then. The Bible is the Word of God. Now, which one do you prefer? It's okay to talk in here, you know. <laughs> the Bible is the Word of God. On more than one occasion, I have been told that the Bible contains the Word of God and some of Paul's opinions. One of the aforementioned pseudo theologians uh, wrote this. He said, my account of the formation of the biblical traditions is an account of a human work. It's man's statement of his beliefs, the events he's experienced, the stories he's been told, etc. It has long been customary to align the Bible with concepts like the Word of God or Revelation. If one wants to use the Word of God type language, the only proper term for the Bible would be Word of Israel or Word of some leading Christians. You have a doctrinal uh, portion of the doctrinal statement there, I trust. Everybody have one of these? Raise your hand if you do not. Here's one up here. Where are our men? Hello, men. Someone get uh, our minister of handouts. <laughs> Maybe the Patterson. You don't have one either. Okay. We've got to have, have some down here. And we'll wait till you get them. Maybe. <laughs> Okay, we got some over here. Put your mittens up high. Two on the front pew here.
Got a front and back. Hopefully they all have a front and back. Let's start on page one, which is the front, right? <laughs> now, we don't, this thing's too long to read all of it together. I'm not going to suggest you do that here. But I do appeal to you. Here's some more up here. Uh, to do this in your study at home. Go through this front and back and find out what it says. This is our doctrinal statement. Now, did you get one? Everybody have one? All right. <laughs> Here we go. Paragraph one. Notice the first sentence there. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Okay? Go down to paragraph four. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth himself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is received because it is the word of God. Then on the back side, paragraph six. The Holy Council of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down necessarily, down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. You know, the cults always have an additional Bible, additional work, right? You got the, the Mormon manual, Catholicism got their stuff. Paragraph 8. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God. Immediately inspired by God. We believe in a plenary inspiration, word by word by word, inspired of God. And by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, and therefore is authentic. And then verse 9 the paragraph 9. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. Why? Because Scripture is infallible and it interprets itself in an infallible way. By the way, infallible means inerrant, free from error. Now, we might don't have time to think about it, but you can have an inerrant document without having an infallible document. But you can't have an infallible document without having an inherent document. This is infallible. It is without error, our word of God. Paragraph 10, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined in all decrees of counsel Opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scriptures delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the position our church family has held to, absolute trust in the infallible word of God of our Father. 
Here's a little summary statement that I've used through the years. We believe that all the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, are fully and equally inspired by God and thus without error in the original manuscripts as written by the prophets and apostles under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Without error, infallible. So we have these people writing about the Word of God, professing to be a part of the church of God that are attacking, attacking the Word of God. Nuts. And, and, and what, what is this like today? These men and ladies that are involved are suggesting to us they have a higher knowledge. That's what John was dealing with in the first century. And it goes on and on and on. And it's going to go on until the Lord Jesus Christ takes us out off the planet. So we've got to know the Word of God. And you know something? There's nothing else more important than this. You know, you need to remember your wife's birthdays and your anniversary and your husband's birthday and all that. And we've got jobs and things we have to do. But ladies and gentlemen, hear me. There's nothing more important than knowing the Word of God. Spending time in the Word of God. Letting the words of Christ dwell in us richly so we're full of it. It's coming out our ears. You bump us, you get a scripture. That's who we're to be. Full of the Word of God. Paul admonishes Timothy, hold fast the faithful word as you've been taught. That's what we're to do. Hold fast this word that we've been taught. That we may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Hold fast means to adhere to. Exhort means to, to urge, to beseech, to encourage, to come alongside them, to give strength from the word of God, give to correction from the word of God. That word sound, by the way, it comes from a Greek word from the word where we get our English word hygienic. It means healthy, healthy, sound doctrine. Hold fast, fast to healthy, sound doctrine. And refute, of course, means to speak against them. The gainsayers and Lego, those are the guys and gals who just speak against con what you believe all the time. And you see, well, those people that say, well, it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Uh, you know. And if you have the <laughs> personality or whatever that I have, you can get really angry at some of these people and you want to smack them in Jesus' name. But that's not biblical. The, word, the Lord says, speak the truth in love, not through clenched teeth, <laughs> but speak the truth in love. But it is angering, isn't it? We know this is the word of God. We know the truth of God. We know the Son of God is our Savior and our Lord. It's hard to share the gospel with someone that you, just everything in you wants to see them born of God and have them rejected. It's very hard. It's crushing. It's crushing. But it happens. And it will happen until that marvelous work done only by the Father turns a switch, that soul is regenerated from death 
to life and able to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're to adhere to sound doctrine, encourage people, urge them to believe the gospel, remembering all the while that no one has ever been argued out of hell and into heaven. It's a work of God. But that does not excuse us at all. Sure, we believe in sovereign election. We believe in all that. But we don't believe we've been called to sit and do nothing. We're called. What did Jesus say? Go, tell, teach, preach, whatever. Baptize them. Evangelize them. Teach them all things. Holding fast. And every false teacher, I don't care where they are and what they're involved in, every false teacher, if you listen carefully, you'll find somewhere along the line there's a contradiction to the truth. Somewhere in their teaching, they'll contradict the truth. I mentioned a few weeks ago Joyce Meyer. Ladies follow her in mass hanging on her every word. She says a lot of neat stuff. I haven't listened to her in years. I didn't listen to her as a practice. I tried to figure out who she was. But she says some nice stuff, okay? But in an example, she talked about Christ dying on the cross, going to hell, suffering for sin in hell. After the devils beat on him for a while, the Lord God said, finally, that's enough. And Jesus became the first born again man. Now, after all this good stuff she said, contradictory to the word of God. And I don't care who it is. Turn on the televangelist or whoever. Listen carefully. If you know the word of God enough, and you're going to find things contrary that cut across the grain of the truth of Scripture. This is it. Don't be looking for anything else. You got it. God has already given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. John MacArthur made this statement in his commentary on Titus. He said, this word of caution. He says, simply to accept the scripture as the inerrant word of God does not protect against its being misinterpreted or misunderstood or even perverted. To give certain personal insights and decisions of church council equal authority besides scripture is to contradict God's word. That's why doctrinal statements are important. The one that we have, the one that we hold to, they must not have anything contrary to the Word of God. We're to hold fast to the Word of God, adhere to it. A Latin term of sola scriptura, nothing else, just the scripture. And if we do that, we can immediately recognize false doctrine. We can be immediately prepared to speak True doctrine, right? If we know. Being able to refute false doctrine and then stand up for our key doctrines, which we know are truth. And you may talk to someone that's very argumentative and say, well, I just don't believe that. Their belief is not in your lap. The only thing you're responsible for is your witness. And we share with them and maybe... By the grace of God, something we said along the way will ring true. You never know. And it doesn't come from preachers, just from preachers. Oh, that's all of us. 
when I'm out and about, you know, in places, I never tell anybody I'm a preacher. Because they'll expect me to say certain things. A few years ago, I had the privilege of being present in my study when this man came. I had preached the day before about the, Paul being a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. This man has spent his life, his career in law enforcement. He knocked on my door on that Monday morning in the study there and he said, Brother, I need to talk to you. And I said, well, come on in here. Sit down. And, and he just started weeping. He said, Brother Ray, I want to become a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I want to become a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I said, well, all right, let's pray. And he did. And he became an outstanding believer in Jesus. Time passed. Of course, this affected him. Everybody in the community hideaway knew him. They knew him on the golf course. They knew him everywhere. Very well-known gentleman. And they knew about his coming to Christ because he told them he had come to Christ. He had a heart attack, a serious one. I was down there with him in a yard. He got through that. And uh, after that, and I, when I was visiting with him, he said, how you doing, bud? He said, I'm fine. You know, if the Lord wants to take me home, that's okay. If he wants me to send me back to Hideaway, that's okay. Everything's good. Peace like a river. Probably why he lived, I don't know. But several months after that, he was out playing golf. And he told the story about having that peace when he's down there in the ER. And a few weeks after that, this guy came to his, you know something? If a preacher had said to me what you said about having that peace laying on that ER table, I'd have blown it off. But he said, I cannot get that out of my mind. Talk to me about it. And he did. He's now with Jesus. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Always, every day, every place you are, to anyone you encounter. So it's the incarnation should be the focus. That's what all these messages are about. The incarnation, incarnation should be the focus of everyone's Christmas. And Christmas typically is a joyful time of celebration, but not for everyone. Sometimes it's, for some people, it's a tough time emotionally, filled with days of sadness and depression. And it's interesting, this season has one of the highest suicide rates of any other time of the year. And oppressive thoughts may impact believers as well as non-believers. Sometimes it's caused from memories of Christmases past with a loved one that's now going on. Uh, sometimes it's unfulfilled expectations. Didn't get what you wanted or whatever. Sometimes it's in January when it really hits when the credit card bills come in for all the gifts that were purchased. But it could be a tough time. But it'll not be a tough time if our focus for Christmas is the incarnation but it also transformed every other season of the year as well. That the incredible truth that God in Christ Jesus came to redeem us from our sins. That's the best antidote for depression. Focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to earth. He successfully, completely, and eternally 
accomplished his mission in us who know him. We are eternally saved, saved to the uttermost because Christ came. And because of what he's done for us, our past is forgiven. Our present makes sense. And our future is secure. That's the glory of Christmas. So Merry Christmas to you. In the mighty name of Jesus, glory to God in the highest. On the earth, ho, ho, ho to the devil, <laughs> a defeated foe, because Christ came through the virgin's womb. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We praise you because you're our God and our Father. Such mercy and grace, Lord, that you would come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to suffer not just to reveal yourself, but to suffer yourself for us. Lord God Almighty, grace beyond description, mercy that just cannot be defined. But we praise you, Lord, for every molecule of it. We're grateful, Lord, that this day, when we're celebrating Christmas, that we are eternally secure in Christ Jesus. May you get all the glory and honor and praise you richly deserve, Master, in and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.